This is MIT Technology Review. When the COVID-19 pandemic began in early 2020, we were all scrambling to deal with lockdowns and shortages and what a pandemic actually meant. But one thing seemed like a given. This virus had jumped to people from wild animals sold in a market in Wuhan, China. And then this. This virus did not originate in the Wuhan animal market. This is Tom Cotton, the Republican senator from Arkansas, speaking in February of 2020. The virus went into that food market before it came out of that food market. So we don't know where it originated. We also know that just a few miles away from that food market is China's only biosafety level four super laboratory that researches human infectious diseases. He was on Fox News pointing out the coincidence that the city of Wuhan is home to one of the most important laboratories studying bat viruses in the world. His suggestion of a possible lab accident didn't catch on, not at first. In fact, Cotton was widely derided for making these comments. The media slammed him for repeating fringe theories about where COVID-19 could have come from. The scientific community itself made sure of that. They closed ranks. They organized a letter in the medical journal The Lancet in which they said there was no chance that COVID-19 had come from a lab. It was science against misinformation, they said. We stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. We speak in one voice, they said. We declare no competing interests. That letter was very effective. I know because... I was among the journalists that called the lab accident a conspiracy theory without thinking it through first. It was just so easy to do because who are you going to believe? An esteemed medical journal or Tom Cotton and Donald Trump? Two years later, wild animal markets remain the chief suspect. But it's hard to rule out a lab accident because those can happen too. It's human nature to screw up. Even the head of the World Health Organization has said that. As you know, I was a lab technician myself. This is Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. He's director general of the WHO. And lab accidents happen. It's common. There was a premature push to reduce one of the options, like the lab theory. I'm Antonio Regalado, and this is Curious Coincidence. The story of the lab leak theory, at least in the Western media, was one of seesawing, from conspiracy to what seemed like a sure thing, and then back again. There were hot takes, long essays by fiction writers, ferocious debates and name-calling, and lots of blocking on Twitter. Researchers at Facebook found that Chinese cyber actors even created a fake Swiss virologist named Edward Wilson, whose account complained that the origins hunt had become politically motivated. A fake persona, but a real opinion. As one of the most famous quotes of the pandemic goes, when you mix science and politics, all you get is politics. But the debate created an opportunity to think about dangerous germ research and lab accidents, to study their history and the secrecy around them. And that is what this episode of Curious Coincidence is about. We talk to a journalist who reports on lab accidents in the United States, and we hear about the strange case of the time-traveling flu, a past pandemic that might have been man-made. Allison Young is a professor of journalism at the University of Missouri. 
I was just intensely curious about things. I liked finding out things other people didn't want people to know about. She's also an investigative reporter who specializes in documenting lab accidents here in the United States. Her work reveals a hidden history of lab mishaps and the culture of secrecy surrounding them. The desire to hide lab accidents is not unique to China. This is a problem in the United States. It's a problem around the world. Can I ask you what you think the likelihood that the current coronavirus pandemic was caused by a lab accident? I mean, do you have a feeling about it? I really have no idea whether a lab accident caused our pandemic. But I also know from reporting on labs and the warnings that all kinds of government entities and researchers have made before the current political climate that there has been a concern for a very long time about the potential for a lab accident to cause a devastating outbreak. And what has been just stunning to me has been the lack of curiosity to really legitimately explore that question. Allison started reporting on lab safety back in 2007. That's when she was a reporter covering the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. The first story I did involved um, an hour-long power outage in what was at that time supposed to be the world's most state-of-the-art infectious disease research lab. It was a $214 million facility, and they had a lightning strike, and it knocked out the power when backup generators failed to turn on. And this is a significant issue because these labs, one of the many series of safety measures to keep pathogens inside the labs is directional airflow. And when the power goes down and the backup power doesn't happen, you end up with the loss of that layer of containment. And what needs to be contained is supplies of the most dangerous germs anywhere, like Ebola, anthrax, and some of the last remaining samples of the smallpox virus, all held by the CDC in its labs. What was even worse about that particular incident is I later found out that the CDC had ignored their engineers' own warnings that the way that this building's backup generators had been designed was not going to prevent that kind of an accident. Allison started to investigate this story after she was tipped off by an anonymous source. It was a really interesting time. Unlike any other time in my reporting history, there were people who were concerned enough about what was going on at the agency that they were sort of setting up these meets in obscure locations, in parks, in vacant stadiums. There were envelopes left for me by park benches. It was, it was just a wild time. The secrecy extended to the physical labs themselves at the CDC's headquarters in Atlanta. It's all sort of walled and fenced off. You have to go through security checks to get into this huge area. But there are multiple buildings there where they study a wide range of pathogens, the baddest of the bugs. High security labs that handle some of the world's most dangerous pathogens come with their own numbered safety levels. Level one is a lab coat and gloves, pretty standard. Level two involves working under a biosafety hood. Think of the plastic shield that keeps you from breathing on the food in a restaurant buffet, except a biosafety hood is so you don't breathe in whatever's in your Petri dish. Level three gets more serious. A biosafety level three lab, also you're wearing these powered respirators and a lot of safety gear. And level four? 
the scientists are, are wearing full body spacesuit-like moon suits when they're working with these pathogens. So basically, every movie about a dangerous virus that you can think of. The lab that Allison was reporting on, the one that had the power outage, was a level three lab, where the pathogen had the potential to be used as a bioweapon. This particular lab had a malfunctioning air handling system. And instead of the air drawing into the contaminated space, the air was potentially going outward into clean areas, into a clean hallway where scientists weren't wearing protective gear. And after that malfunction, the CDC continued to use that lab space, but they dealt with it by putting duct tape on the lab's cracks around the doors. And at some point after I learned about that from a tipster, the CDC did take me into that facility to show me the duct tape lab. One of their safety people was saying, you know, we don't really need to have this duct tape. We could could take it down. And, and I'm standing there saying, well, then why don't you take it down? Well, we could, but, you know, it's just an added enhancement to the security. So, you know, it's one of those things that, in many ways goes to some of the larger questions about the safety in these facilities. That story that Allison reported on was about the failure of containment, how to keep germs from getting out. It turns out, though, duct tape was not the only problem. The culture of laboratory safety needs to improve at some CDC laboratories. This is Tom Frieden, who was the director of the CDC back in 2014. It started with the agency admitting publicly that they had potentially exposed nearly 90 workers at the agency's Atlanta campus to potentially live anthrax bacteria. On June 5th of this year, a laboratory scientist working in one of our bioterrorism response laboratories made a mistake. They used a process that they thought would kill the anthrax bacteria, and it may not have. Because of that, workers in other laboratories who received materials that that laboratory prepared may have been exposed to anthrax. So that was a really high-profile incident, and it was one of several that happened in quick succession. And because these incidents were happening at the CDC, it's supposed to be you know, one of the world's premier public health laboratories, it raised the question for us, what's happening in other labs? And so we set out to find out in this project called Biolabs in Your Backyard, who are all of these other labs that are working with these kinds of dangerous pathogens and what are their safety records? And it ended up being an incredibly difficult project to do because this whole area is cloaked in so much secrecy. So Allison decided to push through. She used the Freedom of Information Act to request accident reports, which took months and sometimes years to arrive. And when those reports finally got to her? They do look like Swiss cheese. They are full of all kinds of the equivalent of black magic marker, you know, scrawling all over them, cutting out all of the kinds of things that shed light on what has actually occurred. So the question that we have is how often are there lab accidents? Like how often do these germs escape? It's very difficult to know what the true frequency of lab accidents is because there is no centralized collection of lab accident data. Part of the problem for the public, however, is that 
Details about those reported incidents are largely kept secret. The actual details of where those incidents occurred, at what facilities, with what kind of pathogen, that kind of information is incredibly difficult to come by. But what we found is that labs really did not want to share this kind of information. It's embarrassing. The federal government also keeps a lot of this information secret under claims that it it somehow will enable terrorists to know where various research pathogens are being held. You're describing a culture, uh, a lab culture, which doesn't want to discuss their mishaps and their accidents. They fight you. Uh, they don't want to answer your Freedom of Information Act requests. So they, they want to put you off, delay you, hope you go away. So they're not being forthcoming, and I suppose they have their reasons. They're dangerous pathogens. They don't want to necessarily announce to the world everything that's going on with them. But what do you think would occur if there were a lab accident in the U.S. where the virus got out and infected people? Like, How would that culture respond to an accident that actually caused public harm and wasn't just something that you could cover up with duct tape? It's a really good question. I think that for better or for worse, as difficult as it has been to report on lab accidents in the United States, we at least still do have mechanisms of law, whether it's our Freedom of Information Act or the ability for congressional oversight to try to get answers to these kinds of questions. You know, I think that there would have been in this country very much an effort to get to the bottom of what had occurred, even if it involved some very uncomfortable questions. Coming up, the curious case of the time-traveling flu. You can find links to our reporting in the show notes, and you can support our journalism by going to techreview.com slash subscribe. We're back after the break. Support for this podcast comes from MIT Technology Review's Pandemic Technology Project. It's funded in part by a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. Compete with compute. The technologies that power business are becoming smarter and faster than ever before. Join MIT Technology Review and experts from AMD, Google, Akamai, and more for our third annual Future Compute Conference, May 3rd and 4th, on the MIT campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Full details at futurecomputemit.com. I'm Gigi Granval, and I have two job titles. I'm a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. I've read your bio, and I can see that you specialize in what they call bioerror and bioterror, lab accidents, and maybe more malicious forms of biotechnology. It's kind of a niche, yeah. <laughs> Gigi Gromval is one of my go-to sources on biosecurity. Her specialty is studying things that could and do go wrong with biology and how to keep research safe. I wanted to find out how you can solve the mystery of where a pandemic comes from. What are the clues? How long does it take? And when can you say that science is to blame? So the subject uh, before us in a way is what is the origin of SARS coronavirus 2? Uh, lots of people have questions about whether it is also the result of 
research activities in China. But there's a prior pandemic, the H1N1 influenza pandemic of 1977 and 1978 that a lot of people are pointing to as an example to be studied. And I know you've written about it. So tell us what happened in 1977 with this strange and unusual influenza outbreak. In 1977, flu season came on like usual. Cynthia, tell me how you feel. Terrible. <laughs> it's just my throat's sore and I've been coughing and everything and it's just awful. The earliest cases for the flu that year were reported to WHO from Russia. And so a lot of people know this year is the Russian flu. What has been described as Russian flu, or its more exotic name, AUSSR 77. Medical experts assure us it's a mild flu. The flu season runs through middle March. It seemed like a normal flu season, except that mostly the people who got sick were younger, 25, 26 and younger. People older than that seem to have been protected. There have also been reports that as many as 700 students at Morgan State University are affected by the flu. The dormitories are filled with students who are following the doctor's advice. If you're over 24, the chances of you getting the Russian flu are mighty slim. But if you feel you have contracted the disease, our experts here say stay away from crowds and treat it as you would any other flu. And that seemed unusual right from the beginning. It was an H1N1 strain, which hadn't been seen in some time. H3N2 had been circulating the previous years. And that was weird. Really weird. Because flu viruses are always evolving. They're always changing. That's why you get a new, updated flu shot every year. It's made to protect against this year's version of the flu. But the 1977 influenza turned out not to be new at all. In fact, it was almost a perfect match to a flu strain that had circulated about 20 years before in 1958. So how had the old flu come back? Scientists were stumped. They speculated that maybe this flu germ had been caught in the ice all that time and frozen. Gigi decided to revisit the evidence from the case of the time-traveling flu. We considered all the possible options we could think of for where this virus came from. We examined what the evidence would be that it was natural. We examined if it was a potential bioweapon and also if it had something to do with a vaccine trial accident or a laboratory accident. Scientists had to explain why it was such a good match to an old flu strain. So, the bioweapon theory. There were a few things that lend support to a theory that it could be a biological weapon. First of all, Russia had biological weapons at the time, although that wasn't necessarily known to a lot of people in, in the West. They were clearly violating the Biological Weapons Convention at the time this virus was circulating. The virus, since it tended to affect people who were younger more, it led to these explosive outbreaks in military academies. And the U.S. Air Force Academy actually had to shut down for some time because three quarters of the cadets had the flu. And that was the first time in their history History that they had to, to shut down. On balance, Gigi and her research team decided this flu virus is not likely to have been a bioweapon. 
knowing what we know now about the Russian program, flu was often used more as a cover story for some more nefarious work that was going on versus, you know, developing flu as a biological weapon. Usually they had some facilities that said they were working on flu and flu vaccines, but in fact there was tularemia stuff going on in the basement. So the biological weapons theory, while we can't disprove it, it's probably not the case. And then there's the theory that it came about through some sort of vaccine trial. The evidence for this flu emerging from a vaccine trial gone wrong seemed to be a lot stronger than any of the other possibilities. First of all, there's a lot of vaccine research on attenuated, so live attenuated vaccines going on at the time. Big trials in the Soviet Union and in China in those years. Some vaccines are actually made from weak versions of real viruses. An attenuated virus is active enough to make you immune, but not so much that you get particularly sick. To attenuate a virus, scientists grow it in a lab or in animals. And sometimes those lab manipulations can leave other fingerprints on a virus, telltale signs of having been handled in a laboratory. A lot of the strains that were sampled from 77, from this flu season, were temperature sensitive. So that's another indicator that it had been manipulated in the laboratory and maybe was developed as a vaccine strain. Had doctors somewhere exposed people to a virus that perhaps wasn't as weak as they thought it was? In a bizarre twist to this story, a possible answer in the case came a whole 27 years later. In 2004, a prominent virologist named Peter Pelize wrote in the journal Nature Medicine that a colleague of his in China, Qiming Chu, one of the founders of virology research there, had sent him a personal letter, all but confirming the theory of a vaccine trial gone wrong. He linked it to an attempt to vaccinate thousands of soldiers. Qiming Chu didn't name names or even a country, but he told Peter Police that the 1977 flu was the result of a medical experiment on military recruits somewhere in the Far East. I reached out to Peter Police via email, and he got back to me quickly. He wrote back to me in all caps, no comment. Things are just too political now. He didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, the weight of the evidence seems to point to a, a vaccine challenge study or clinical trial. The evidence seems to support that conclusion. But we still don't actually know for sure exactly what happened. That's because no one ever admitted to starting the 1977 flu pandemic. It became one of the strains that circulated for, for years, and it changed the pattern of flu um, as well, because it used to be prior to that time that there was only one strain that circulated around the globe at a time, and then we had multiple strains um, for whatever reason. And, and so that's why we have to have a flu vaccine that protects against multiple strains. Getting to SARS coronavirus too, in the first year of the pandemic, everybody was busy trying to avoid getting infected and, and taking all kinds of steps to, to battle the disease. But the conversation has again turned to the question of where did this new virus come from? And I think some of the options that people have floated are the same ones that you looked into with the 1977 pandemic, bioweapon, laboratory accident, or even that it was some kind of vaccine test gone wrong. So did you expect that to happen? Do you expect the debate to turn back to this question about whether it is research gone wrong? 
I did expect it to to turn back to that question. Absolutely, because it's not just this pandemic. It's almost every epidemic where there is this question of where did it come from? And I remember in 2009, influenza, that uh, bad year for flu, there were lots of articles, you know, questioning whether or not it really was a natural emergence and what could potentially have gone wrong there. And so there's, yeah, it's, it's always something to think about. And it's an important set of questions to ask. So SARS coronavirus too, can you lay out for us evidence that points in any of these directions? People are suspicious about the origin. So do you think that there are lines of, of evidence that support those suspicions? As far as the origin of SARS-CoV-2 goes, I think people have suspicions because of the lack of transparency of the Chinese government when it comes to investigating the origin of the virus. There's been a number of things that they've done that have precluded being able to, to determine the origin. But on the side of natural emergence, which I think there's more evidence that supports that, we have past precedent, we have lots of coronavirus viruses emerging over the last couple decades and some bat viruses that come through some other animal. We have a lot of diversity in some of the early cases um, that suggest multiple spillover events from some animal. There were questions of the market, the early cases that were seen in the market, like how could they have gotten sick from, you know, a seafood market? Well, it turns out, you know, there were all kinds of contraband animals that were being sold and that and butchered in that market. So I think there's a lot that needs to be done to be able to figure out, you know, to really push on the natural origin. On the next episode, we're talking about China. It's the country that kept the pandemic at bay with a strict zero-COVID policy. But it's not only the germ that's tightly controlled. It's also what people can say and think about COVID-19, a government that claims the pandemic started in America, the wild animal markets that might really be to blame, and why China might not be too interested in finding the origin, no matter what it is. That's the next Curious Coincidence. Curious Coincidence is a production of MIT Technology Review. It's produced as part of our Pandemic Technology Project, which is supported by a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. The show was created by me and Jennifer Strong. The producers are Anthony Green and Lindsay Moscato, with help from Emma Silicons. The production manager is Luke Robert Mason. Our theme music was composed by Jacob Gorski, with original scoring and mixing by Garrett Lang. We're edited by Michael Riley, David Rotman, and Jennifer Strong. The executive producer of Curious Coincidence is Golda Arthur. I'm Antonio Regalado. Thanks for listening.